You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. If you will, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 today, we'll look at verse 28 to kind of set the table for our study today. And uh, glad that you're here today. Trust God's working in your heart through our worship and uh, prayer time together. Matthew chapter 10, and if you will, verse 28. Before we look at our text and our day together, our study together, I want to just let you know uh, about uh, next weekend. And uh, as you probably see behind me on the stage, trying to figure out if your picture's up there or not. Um, we, have, uh, we are a week removed from celebrating a dozen years uh, as North Life Baptist Church. And I can't even tell you, it feels so much shorter than that and so much longer than that. Uh, I don't even know how to put that into words, but we're excited to do that next weekend. So a couple things as it relates to that. Uh, first of all, you should be receiving, if you're a part of, if you're guest with us today, I'm sorry if you get left out on this, but we mailed out a letter to most of you that are part of our church family and regularly attend here with just some details about next weekend, so I trust you'll look that over, and uh, you should get that probably tomorrow in the mail or Tuesday at the latest, and invite you to look that over just to get a better uh, feel of next weekend. But a couple of things of note. One would be next Saturday evening, in lieu of us having a Sunday night service, just logistically doing a meal and things is a little harder uh, on a Sunday than it is on Saturday night. Next Saturday night at 5.30, we will have our opening service. So that'll be next Saturday evening at 5.30, and then right after that will be a church-wide meal. You don't need to bring anything for the meal. The church is providing all of that. If you'd like to help in any way, you can see Michelle Hinkle or other deacon wives uh, and ask them about that. But we're looking forward to hosting that here. Our guest speaker for the weekend is going to be Brother uh, Jeremy Rands, who was actually supposed to be here last year for our anniversary Sunday, and he got stuck listening to me preach. We normally have a guest preacher in for that uh, weekend, so he and his wife Michelle will be with us Saturday night, as well as Sunday then, we'll have a morning service at 1030, uh, and uh, that will be it for the day. We'll have that service at 1030, so I invite you to be a part of Saturday night at 530. Make that a priority to be here for that, uh, that evening, and then Sunday uh, at 1030. The last thing would be this, um, one of the things we're going to do next or on Saturday and Sunday that I'd like you to pray about, if you're a guest, we're not trying to get weird with you, you don't need to participate in this unless you want to come and be a part, but for all those who've been a part of our church, either for just a few months or since the beginning, there's just a few of us left, no one else can tolerate me at this point, I guess, um, that's been with us this long, but what I want you to think about is one word, we're going to give you a marker uh, next, this coming Saturday night, one word uh, of how God has used North Life Baptist Church. Don't make it about me or someone else in leadership here or someone else. I'm saying, what has God done? One word, if you had to shape it with one word, comfort, clarity, forgiveness, peace, whatever it is, that to use the most prominent word and then a verse to write with it, um, just the reference, not the full verse. We're going to ask you to put that on the banner, one of these two banners, to write in the white space, not over somebody's face, okay? Don't even think about it. I'm so thankful that this person, I don't have to sit next to them in church or whatever, but um, pick something, a word, a verse, and then just your name. And we'd love to keep these uh, just as a memory of what God has done in the last 12 years. And so all of our 
uh, kids and teenagers and adults, you're welcome to participate in that next weekend. So that's kind of the schedule, and I hope that you'll be with us for each of those things that we share together. All right, Matthew chapter 10. Let's look, if you would, at verse 28, and let's read this verse together, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord to help us in this crucial subject matter today. Verse 28 of Matthew 10, Christ here speaking says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the, uh, kill the soul, but rather fear him who is him. It is God which is able to destroy both soul and body. Notice these last two words, in hell. And so today is our task. We've been looking at bite-sized spirituality. We've talked about angels and demons and God and Satan. And today the task before us is looking at this word hell and all that it means for us as a believer or as an unbeliever this morning. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this series you've been bringing us through, Lord, to deal with things that are just as real as the room we're in today, um, just as real as the seat that we're seated in or the platform that I'm standing on today. And we thank you that your word gives us perception beyond the physical world to these spiritual realities that we must all navigate. Lord, in a few weeks we look forward to studying on heaven, but it is our task today to contrast and to set the table for that study by first considering where we each deserve to end up and your loving and tender warnings and preemptive um, just uh, heads up, Lord, that you give us, that Lord helps us to avoid this place and to help others do the same. We know we deserve it, Lord, and yet we rejoice in your mercy and grace today. Help me, Lord, to be clear and compassionate in what is shared today. I pray that each would be willing to receive, and I pray especially for those who've yet to receive Christ, the only exit out, the only liberty out of this future place, that, Lord, they would be willing to receive him as Savior and Lord even today. Bless this study, be honored in it, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Um, I don't know if you've traveled much lately. It seems like travel's been a bit on the decline with everything we've been navigating, but I don't know if you've flown lately. Uh, a few of you I know have flown recently. Um, I am of the persuasion I would enjoy flying a lot more if I could fly on a private charter jet. Does anybody else share that affinity? You get, you know, you get through security and you feel like you're part of just a cattle herd, you know, and, and then one of the dynamics I often have observed in the plane setting is the seat, specifically the upright or the reclined position. The other day, someone who travels uh, rather regularly made this assessment. They said, I hold the truth to be self-evident that it is always rude to recline your, air, uh, your airline seat, your airplane seat, unless the passenger is under the age of two. If, if they're any bigger than that, if you put back your seat, it is, it is, it is a social faux pas. It is rude to do so. Um, I was thinking about this as it relates to our subject matter today. I think we are often too laid back about certain things. If you follow the, the connection there to the opening illustration, at the expense of those who are behind us. And I want to encourage us today to be honest about where God's word is specific and, and even repetitive and to make sure that we are emphasizing what God's Word is emphasizing. And one of the areas that I think we're hurting those who are influencing more than any other is we are diminishing the response of a holy God, rightly so, to our fallenness, to our sinfulness. There's going to be a lot of grace and mercy emphasized today and the love of God being emphasized today, but we must understand uh, what God has revealed in His Word. And I was reading an article the other day. The author said this, historically, it, hell, has played a large role in convincing people of their need for Christ. 
Today we are losing our doctrine of hell, and therefore we are losing conversions with it. If we care about the lost, we must take care to articulate not just what we're inviting them to in Christ, emphasis on the word to, but what we are inviting them away from, emphasis on the word from. And I say this only by personal antidote or illustration today. We just today in our small groups, we got to hear in our small group how people got saved, how they received Christ as Savior. And I was not the only one to share this, but in 1985, on a very humid, sticky summer night, on Wednesday night in August of 1985, I heard a sermon that included the subject matter we're looking at today. And that night, beside my bunk bed, my brother and I, who's now a missionary in London, we got saved. We know Christ is Savior because someone was willing to faithfully preach uh, on and teach on this subject. So that's the spirit. It's not to... To, to scare you or to jar you, it's to call you to Christ or to call you to appreciate what you have in Jesus Christ. So let's talk about today two characteristics of hell as revealed in Scripture. Number one, for a few minutes, first of all, let's talk about the fact that hell is a real place. And one of the things that I was struck by, this has been a weighty week for me as I prepared for this sermon today, knowing guests would be here and regulars and young people are here today. And one of the things I was struck by is it is a difficult thing to study on and to to teach on, but we never will fully understand the glory of God, listen to me, or his gospel until we appreciate what he's rescued us from. And so I hope you'll leave today just stunned by and glorying in how far the lengths that God went to to deliver us uh, from this very real place. All right, let's talk about a couple things under that. And I think these things are in your notes. They're not on our slides today, but they're in the bulletin. Number one, let's talk about some human challenges to the reality of hell. There are many avenues, and, and, and those who have uh, either mocked the reality of hell or they are marginalizing it, they're excusing it away. I read the other day of an author who said this, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And what humanity has done is we've just slowly, gradually, we've excused away, we've watered away uh, the clear teaching of God's Word. And so the safest road for the human perspective is to minimize this doctrine. Let's talk about two quickly of the primary challenges in our day to the doctrine of eternal punishment Uh, for those who do not receive Christ as Savior. The first one would be what's called universalism. And again, we're not going to go to seed on this, but I just want to give you an overview as we study on bite-sized spirituality. There are those who subscribe to what is called universalism that would seek to reason away um, this place that God so lovingly warns us of. This view of universalism is the belief that in the end, all human beings will be gathered into the love of God. It's it's we're all brothers and we're all sisters and God is our Father. And, and so in the end, in the by and by, we will all uh, experience God's favor and fellowship. Universalists would also claim that a loving God would never allow someone to suffer forever in hell. And that's often a part of their teaching. They teach that if there is a hell, that it is only a temporary place of purification, preparing souls to all then receive ultimate salvation. And so universalism explains away this eternal uh, consequence called hell. Now, the error of universalism is that it's inconsistent with everything the Bible teaches. Um, And we don't have time to unpack all of these passages, but I give you just a few of them that directly confront universalism. Matthew 25, 41, as well as verse 46. 
Matthew 25, 41 and 46, Mark 9, 43 to 48, and then some of the most direct ones would be Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15, Revelation 20, 14 and 15, and also chapter 21 and verse number 8. Now, may I say this by way of illustration? The other day I saw a picture of um, a lady standing um, beside a gravestone, and she's standing there, and obviously her deceased loved one, she's remembering and reflecting on the life of that person she loved. And the statement above the picture was, he's in a better place. And then the picture was cut in half, and beneath it was trying, from an artist's perspective, trying to convey the horrors of hell. Can I just remind you today, not everybody that dies goes to a better place. We do believe that today, right? Or at least we should, based on the teaching of God's Word. That's not to hate on folks. That's to love on folks. And so God warns us of that. And so the universalist perspective uh, is out of step with the Word of God. All right, the second one, quickly, annihilationism. If you can't spell that, just say annihilated or something to that effect, annihilationism. This would be a belief that those who die, depart, who die apart from saving faith in Christ will ultimately be destroyed. Annihilationists reject the historic view of hell as a conscience, conscious, endless punishment. And one of the most popular uh, versions of that would be conditionalism. Um, those who subscribe to this, some even evangelicals so-called, uh, would believe that God has created all human beings to only potentially be immortal. Upon union with Christ, believers participate in a divine nature and receive this immortality. Unbelievers never receive this capacity to live forever and thus will ultimately cease to exist. And that is becoming more mainstream. I hate to acknowledge that, but it is true. And so this conditionalism that if we receive Christ, we receive the potential for immortality. If we don't, at death, that is it. Obviously, this teaching does not fit with the biblical story or narrative. At the end, Scripture is clear, the unsaved do not cease to exist, but in line with what the church has taught since the beginning, endure never-ending torment in a lake of fire and are shut out of the new Jerusalem. Revelation 20 has several verses on that. Revelation 21, verse 8. Revelation 22, verses 14 and 15. All right, hold your place there in Matthew 10. We may come back to that. Would you go to chapter 25 for just a moment? You say, Pastor, how does that impact me? If I know Christ as Savior, or if today you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, what's the big deal on accepting these teachings, universalism, um, annihilationism, or other versions of it? Matthew 25, if you would please look at verse 46. And this verse says it all. This verse captures for us the, the struggle, the tension we have to try to have heaven without hell. Look here in Matthew 25 and verse 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment. All right? Notice these. So some are not universally included and they're not uh, annihilated. They go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And the point is this this morning to take away the eternal from punishment is also to lose the eternality of the life that God offers to us. You can't have it one way. Uh, you, can't, you can't just have the promises in God's word of eternal life without also the warnings, the loving warnings of this eternal punishment. And so it's all or nothing. Choose the man perspective or choose what God has to say, but God is clear on what he teaches. All right, now let's talk about number two, some biblical confirmations of the reality of hell. How do we know that the Bible, or how do we know that hell exists as defined in Scripture? My job today is not to argue with you or to hate on you or to 
create any friction between you. My job is to clearly preach the Word of God, and the Bible is clear as it relates to the reality of hell. I don't know if you remember a book, those of you who read broadly, maybe, or if you're aware of Christianity in a broader sense, things that are written sometimes under the banner of Christianity. But 10 years ago, uh, this year, um, there was a book written called Love Wins by a gentleman named Rod Bell. And in that book, he basically erases hell. He strips it from our theology and says it's possible to be a Christian without believing in the doctrine of hell. May I remind you of a book that has been written for a few more years than that? That, that is so clear and, and loving and compassionate to give us this truth that will never change. And it is the ultimate love letter, the love that ultimately wins, which is a love willing to give us the truth. All right, let me give you two areas in which the Bible confirms the reality of hell. Number one, in the New Testament. And I'm just going to go through these quickly, but just give you kind of a sense of how, how, um, how large the, the swath of Scripture is in the New Testament that affirms that uh, this place is a real place. Before I give this to you, I was thinking about this the other day. Why, why was the early church so quick to turn the world upside down? Why did they have such an impact? Why were... The, these men who wrote the New Testament, and the New Testament is written about what they did or God used them to do. Why was there so much power and impact? And I think one of the things we could attribute that to would be their faithfulness to communicate the reality of hell, the consequences of sin. Why has the church lost its influence in our day? We're, we're soft-toeing our way around things God's Word is clear on, right? And so to regain that influence and that that impact with the gospel, we must reaffirm that we align with what Scripture has to say on this subject. Charles Spurgeon said this, you cannot get a harvest if you're afraid of disturbing the soil, nor can you save souls if you'll never warn them of hellfire. And so if you feel a bit disturbed or kind of uncomfortable today, can I encourage you, that's not a bad thing necessarily if it's built on God's Word. All right, these sub-points underneath of New Testament. First, in Paul's writings, and obviously we don't have time to go through all of Paul's writings. He wrote uh, a large portion of the New Testament, but Paul was clear that he believed and he taught under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that hell was a real place. By the way, the same guy who wrote the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and so this apostle, this writer of the New Testament was clear, and I would give you just a summary of, of, of his book of Romans. All of them we can find references to uh, consequences of sin for the unbeliever, but in the letter to the Roman church, Paul stresses that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, under God's wrath, and therefore under God's judgment. Only those who have faith in Christ will escape, and he's clear, he's clear, he's clear on that. Number two, in the book of Hebrews, two passages in Hebrews speak clearly about the future judgment. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 3 refer to this future punishment of the wicked as eternal judgment. And it's interesting, in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 2, it refers to the doctrine of eternal judgment as an elementary doctrine. Everybody knows this. this. This is a non-negotiable, and so the writer of Hebrews is very clear on that. In chapter 10 and verse 27 through 30, he depicts the judgment as fearful and dreadful and a raging fire that will consume the willful enemies of God. Number three, in the book of James, uh, we see that oppressors wither away and are destroyed in chapter 1 and verse 11. Sin produces death as its offspring in verse 15 of that same chapter. God, God is the lawgiver and the judge able to save and destroy, chapter 4 and verse 12. This suffering is just, it is certain, 
it is severe. And so we see in the book of James, clearly the New Testament writer believed in and taught on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the reality of hell. All right, two more. In the books of Peter and Jude, it's interesting, we studied 1 Peter over the summer here, but in 2 Peter and in Jude, you see that these two writers are very clear and direct in how they depict, depict hell as a real place. It's depicted as a destructive place in 2 Peter 2.1, verse 3 and verse 12, in Jude 5, verse 10 and verse 11, it is a place of condemnation that hangs over the wicked, 2 Peter 2.3 and Jude verse 4. Peter also writes the hell is a place of retribution in 2 Peter 2.13 and blackest darkness, uh, verse 17 of that same chapter. Jude chimes in in verse 13. And Jude adds that hell is the punishment of eternal fire, verse 7, verse 15, and verse 23. And then lastly, we see it in the book of Revelation. Revelation clearly teaches, does it not, on a place called hell? Uh, we, we, we love to read, don't we, the picture of heaven. And I'm, I'm, I wish I could skip this on one front. And let's just talk about heaven today. We love those last couple of chapters of Revelation. But even in those chapters, as well as the previous chapters, we see God clearly revealing to us that this place uh, does exist. It's described as a place of God's fury and wrath felt in full force. In Revelation 20, verse 10 to 15 the Apostle John emphasizes that hell is just punishment for the wicked. God cast the devil, the beast, the false prophet into this same place, this lake of fire. And by the way, you clearly see in 20 of Revelation, the devil's not calling the shots in hell. He's not the ruler of this place. It was prepared for him. Uh, he is under its wrath. He is suffering, and someday he will be our enemy uh, no more. And so we see clearly God deals with uh, this uh, place of hell in the book of Revelation. The other day I read a statement by J.C. Ryle. He said this, the saddest road to hell, listen to this, is the one that runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and through the middle of warnings and invitations. That's the saddest road that, that leads there. Don't walk past the Bible. Don't ignore what the Bible has to say or this pulpit that's striving to be faithful to it. Listen to the warnings. Listen to the invitations. All right, now go back to Matthew 10, and we begin with today in verse 28, and we see a second confirmation that hell is a real place. And we see it here in verse 28 as we see these words, fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is speaking in Matthew 10 and verse 28? Jesus, right? So we have the New Testament writers that affirm that hell is a real place. Number two, we see it in Jesus' teachings. Now, key, key point this morning, every New Testament writer speaks on this subject. So, so the New Testament that's so precious to you and me, every one of the authors of the New Testament in some way deals with this difficult subject, but may remind you also that Jesus himself teaches on it more than anyone else. He teaches on it more than heaven. He teaches more on it than anyone else in the Bible. He uh, adheres himself to the belief, he identifies with the belief that hell is a real place. Now, to the best that I could study, there's 162 references to hell or some form of it in the New Testament. 162. Of those, 70 come from the lips of Christ. Isn't that amazing? The one that we, we talk about, he loves us and he longs for relationship with us. And right now we're studying Christ being gentle and lowly, meek and lowly in our lives, but he is the one who taught the most on this subject. 
One author I was reading said this, to be a Christian is at the very least to confess Christ the Son of God, and to confess Christ the Son of God is at the very least to submit to his teachings, and this includes his teachings on hell. So if we're going to submit to Christ, we claim to love him and know him, we need to place ourselves under uh, what he has taught. And we could go a lot of places in those 70 references, but the only one I'd mention today is the Sermon on the Mount. Any of you familiar with that? Matthew 5 to 7, where Christ is talking about being meek and the gentle and, and those very soft, tender, endearing passages. But in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, where he's emphasizing love and his kingdom and other truths that we treasure, he also teaches repeatedly upon the reality and nature of hell. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 to 30, in Matthew 7, 13 to 27, he talks about the extreme suffering and we ought to be committed to not entering into this place. And so he teaches on its existence. And here's kind of how I feel like we view this with Christ. We almost view it like God was mean and immature and kind of capricious or whatever in the Old Testament, but then Jesus came. And now God's just this grown-up version, softer, tenderer, um, whatever. And I think sometimes because of that mindset through the ministry of Christ, we see with that lens, this meek and mild Jesus, we miss what he teaches on this subject that always must be balanced in our thinking as we study these other texts. The problem with this view that somehow God was mean in his Old Testament period, and now through Christ in the New Testament, he's only meek and mild, is you find that Jesus here, as I said, speaks about hell more than anyone else. And so it's not de-emphasizing it, it's actually ramping up its significance and application in our lives as followers of him. So why did Jesus talk so much about hell? You want to know why? Here it is, lovingly. Because it's the default position of everyone, every person on the planet. That if we don't put our faith in Him, this is where we're headed. And everybody you know and everybody I know. That's not hating, that's loving to, to, to declare that. And so we're left with two options. Stay in our depravity, stay in our eternally punished direction and destiny, or submit to Him as Savior and receive His salvation. Which will you choose? Which Will I choose? And so hell is real, whether we like it, whether we feel it or not, will we let God deliver us from it? Um, the other day I heard someone define it as this, this struggle we have with hell. He says, the people in the pews, those in the churches, can go to hell clinging to Bible verses, listen to me, abstracted from Jesus. That's what we're doing. We have the Bible and we love the Psalms and we love the tender passages and the, man, God is so good. But we're abstracting it, we're taking it, we're, we're disconnecting it from the Word, Jesus, and the teaching he had on this subject as well as others. Don't go to hell by abstracting the Bible from our glorious Savior. All right, number two, let's spend a few minutes now talking about the torments. And we do this not to commiserate or to just be intrigued on a, uh, in a curiosity level, but to glory in what God either can or has delivered us from. Um, one of the running jokes we have on staff here is uh, Pastor Dave, who's back at the sound booth, hopefully paying attention right now um, and not shopping for the following object that I'm about to mention, uh, is this just happened today. He's, he wants a drone and he's trying to think of every way that the church, you know, justifiably can expense that, expense that out. 
I keep telling him, I don't know that in our budget, we talked about that, okay, that that's a part of our budget. So hopefully he's not, you know, shopping for one right now, now that I mentioned that. But just the other day, I got a box in the mail or from UPS, he works there part-time, and he brought it in, and his first question was, is it a drone? Is it a drone? <laughs> like, no, it's a book. Calm down, okay? It's just a book. Uh, the other day, I saw this video that I think kind of captures, so this is, a, this is drone footage, uh, and then I'll bring this into our study today. So this is a man manning this drone. This is an unbelievable. Um, and the caption of the video was, uh, what do you do when you, when you have a drone you're willing to lose? What's better than flying into an active volcano? So this guy just flies it into the fire, and that's it. Can I just say to you today, as it relates to the torments of hell, I don't know that we realize what we're going toward without Christ, or listen to me, where we would be headed without Christ. That, that jars me just to watch that, let alone think about not just a drone with me in a safe distance on a, on a display control panel, but to actually be headed myself. And each of us prior to Christ were headed that direction, that may be you today. And the loving uh, tone of the study today is not to pass judgment, listen to me, but to prevent judgment. Judgment on your own that already has been taken for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this place of torment, may we glory in what God has delivered us from. And I think that's what's most difficult about this study is that we're uncomfortable with it. Uh, J.F. Packer was once quoted as saying this, views about hell should never be determined by considerations of comfort. It's not about whether we're comfortable with this today or we're comfortable someday if we share in this lot. It's what is truth and how can we avoid it through the grace and mercy of God. All right, so let's talk about a couple of areas that God delivers us from through Christ. Number one, physical torment. Would you go to Revelation 21? Let's spend just a moment here as we briefly describe this place and glory and revel in the grace of God that delivers us from it. Revelation chapter 21, if you would please, verse number 8. So let's break down a few areas of physical torment that we can avoid through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Revelation 21, and if you would please, verse number 8. And it's interesting to me that God tucks these verses in the midst of all the glorious things about heaven. Like, I love Revelation 21. But in the midst of that, in contrast, that almost to remind us that we don't deserve heaven and this is what we rightfully deserve. Notice verse 8, but the fearful, Revelation 21, 8, and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth, notice this, with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, with fire and brimstone. So first it possesses fire and brimstone. This fiery... Uh, setting, these, the horrors of this, the, the difficulties of this. And in contrast to those who don't deserve but have received a place in heaven, those who practice uh, the sin of unbelief will be excluded from this new Jerusalem and will be destined for this fiery lake of burning sulfur. It's, uh, it's a pungent place. It's a powerful place. It's a horrible place. And he mentions there in verse number eight, almost as if to remind us how God is right to do so, just eight of sins that are itemized there at the beginning of verse number eight. I was reading a book recently um, about D-Day and the soldiers as they stormed the beaches of Normandy, and I think there were, there were six other or five other prongs of that attack. The U.S., uh, specifically, I was reading about that one primarily. 
And this author was giving detailed accounts of the just gut-wrenching challenges these men face as they storm the beaches uh, and all that their sacrifices have secured for us. And one of the descriptions of one of the men who, because what would happen is these boats would capsize, you would have flamethrowers and bombs and all, you know, you have, you have fuel coupled with uh, explosives of, of every kind imaginable and that combination and the, the horrific fires and burning that occurred. And one of the men that was mentioned, that they mentioned his name, they said that he had at the end of, of his time there, he lived, that had 95% burns on his body. So bad indeed that when the medics later gave him a transfusion, the only place they said where they could find to stick a needle was the inner side of his big toe. Only that was left. I don't know that we can fully absorb today the, the comprehensive horror that we just read. We just read verse 8 and we just move on if we're not careful. The fire, the brimstone, the place that not just those horrible people deserve, but you and I deserve. Outside of Christ, this place of fire and brimstone, the fire fueled by the righteous, holy judgment of God. All right, then if you will go to Luke chapter 16. Let's spend a moment there as well. And we'll come back to this in just a moment, this story of the rich man and Lazarus that gives us a little peek behind the the curtain of, of entrance into eternity. Luke chapter 16, and if you would please, verse number 24. What other physical torments are a part of this real place? First, fire and brimstone. Look at now, if you will, verse 24. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Number two, there's, it's a place and not just with fire and brimstone, but with thirst is the word there. And may I say today, this is more than just about a thirst for literal water. It's conveying the absolute desperate craving for what is unavailable to physical appetites. It's being denied, and it never will not be denied. It is a permanent place of craving and thirsting that will never be satiated. All right, Matthew chapter, go back to Matthew, if we will, verse number 12 of chapter 8. Matthew 8, what other physical torments await those who reject Jesus Christ? who loved them and gave himself for them. Matthew chapter 8, and if you would please, verse number 12. So there's fire and brimstone, there's thirst. Thirdly, verse 12 says this, but the children of the kingdom, after just talking about the kingdom of heaven, but the children of the kingdom that shall, or shall be cast out in outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thirdly, it is a place with darkness, the torment of darkness. Outer darkness here refers to the condemnation of second death, being separated from God gnashing, gnashing of teeth. One thing that struck me in verse number 12, did you notice it where it says at the end of verse 12, there, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth? I think there is there on purpose. Wouldn't we agree that Scripture is very clear in what it's saying and why it's saying it? Is that not a, at least a reference to that there is a place over there? Again, literal. Um, there's an emphasis upon it is a real place. And in that place is this outer darkness. Doesn't that make you appreciate just for a moment, if we step back, the light of heaven? It's not just brighter than here. It's much brighter than here, what's being described. And so this place of darkness that we deserve, Christ offers to us uh, freedom from it. All right, lastly, Revelation 14. Would you go there in verse number 11? 
Revelation 14. And this is probably one of the most sobering verses as it relates to those who align against the Lamb, those who reject Christ. Revelation 14, and if you would please, verse 11. And the smoke of their, excuse me, the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Notice that. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Notice they have no rest. Lastly, there is, it's a place with restlessness. And so this verse reminds us that it is a conscious place. It's a place of conscious punishment. You're aware of what's going on. The Bible does not teach an annihilation. The smoke of their torment ascends perpetually with no relief day or night. Um, this past weekend, we went on a camp out, some of us guys and teenage boys, and we had a, a, a good time together, camped out down Loudonville, did some hiking at Mohican, and uh, we uh, had two meals over the fire. So we had a meal Friday night, and then we had breakfast. Oh, the breakfast was phenomenal, okay? Uh, it was also not so healthy, I have to admit, okay? Um, it involved a ton of meat with a few token veggies tucked in, Okay. <laughs> And uh, we had like four, five forms of sausage or pork, I think, and maybe, you know, again, just a few things, a few peppers and potatoes. Are potatoes even a vegetable? I don't know if that's legit or not. But anyway, trying to like soothe our conscience or whatever. But anyway, we enjoyed our time together. And I noticed when I got home that I had, I smelled like I'd been around a campfire for two days, okay? And then I, I showered, and I'm sure Heidi had probably washed my, those clothes by now. And I was free of that, the, the, even the remnants of that. The other day I read this statement, which is not, not from a spiritual source or a, a, a sacred source, but it was an interesting thought. Have you ever thought about that man is the only creature God has made that interacts with fire? Um, and sometimes we're not so smart with that, right? You've tried the gasoline can thing on your campfire or whatever, those kind of things we've all at least thought of doing. But the statement was made. I thought this was interesting. Man is the only creature that dares to light a fire and live with it. The reason, because he alone has learned to put it out. And can I just tell you today, this is a fire we can't put out. This is a fire you can't put out and I can't put out and no one with all of their resources and all of their knowledge and all their academic background, no one can put out a fire that God starts, a fire that leaves us with fire and brimstone, thirst, darkness, and restlessness. We started the fire, did we not? When we rebelled. We started it. We cannot put it out. We must look to someone greater than us. There's no sheer physical effort or words that can overcome this fire. It must be outside of ourselves. All right, number two, let's talk about not only the physical torment, number two, the mental Torment. So obviously the body is racked with pain in this place in a way we can't even fathom. It's hard to even really go there mentally. But then there is the mind. There is what we struggle with. Would you go to Luke 16? Let's go back there for a moment. Luke 16 and verse 25. What are some of the mental torments that will be a part of those who occupy this place? Luke chapter 16, and if you would please, verse 25. Luke 16. Again, picking up in the middle of this parable, and yet not a parable, one with proper names. These were real men, these men being referenced here. And in verse 25, notice Christ says this, But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art 
tormented. The verse is not teaching that those who are poor earn heaven or those who are rich are left out of heaven. That's not the thrust of the passage. But notice at the beginning of verse 25, son, remember, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime. The first mental torment of this place will be with missed opportunities. The, the mind over and over, mulling over and remembering missed opportunities. All right, if you can, if everybody can look at me for just a second, if you're taking notes, I want you to see me when I say this to you. If, heaven forbid, one of those watching or the one in this room ends up in this place, you will remember this moment. You'll remember what I said, not because I said it. You'll remember what this book says and what you did with it. And I don't want that replay. I want the opposite memory. You and I together, only by the grace of God, I'm planning to go to heaven through what Christ has done, us to celebrate this moment from the other side. But the mental torment, the moments I could have said yes to Christ and could have repented of sin, those clear moments will play over and over again to those who share this place that we rightfully deserve. And so may you remember, may you respond, may you take the opportunity that Christ gives you today. One author I was reading said this, a time is coming when many will repent too late believe too late, have sorrow for sin too late, begin to pray too late. Myriad shall wake up in another world and be convinced of truths which on earth they had refused to believe. And then listen to this statement, hell is nothing but truth known too late. Don't wait till it's too late. If that's you today, can I call you? Can I invite you? If you're watching this after the fact online, wherever you're at today, in the room or out uh, online watching this, would you respond to the invitation? Would you seize the opportunity to receive God's truth? All right, then if you would, verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which pass from hence to you cannot, uh, cannot neither can they pass to us that would come from Number two, not only is there the torment of missed opportunities, number two, situational hopelessness. The situation, as described here in the text, is one of hopelessness. It's almost like the video game thing. We, we always think we're going to get a redo, right? New life, new whatever, and it's just a redo. This is a moment that is irreversible, and those who are in this place will be acutely aware of that truth. Here we see a reference to the choices of this life determine our eternal destiny. And once death has taken place, that destiny is fixed. There's no passage from the abode of the saved to that of the damned. Isn't that a blessing? We can't mess it up in eternity and lose our salvation. But equally true is that those who are judged cannot go to the abode of those who are saved. There is no last-minute decisions. I heard a story a few years ago that sobers me every time I read it of a lady named Carol Fuller. And I do this not to be melodramatic or to try to scare you today, but just to, with God's help, sober you. Carol Fuller, uh, this story came out of West Hollywood back in 1995, was a 72-year-old grandmother who was living alone in her little West Hollywood apartment. Uh, During a home invasion robbery, she was locked in a closet, so somebody broke in and locked her in a closet during the process. Her home was ransacked, her car was stolen. All of this took place without anyone knowing. But the worst part followed, the news story says. 
Days later, investigators found her dead in the closet with her fingers cut from trying to claw her way out of that closet. Sadly, Carol Fuller left this world experiencing much the same horror that many of us will experience for the rest of eternity if we don't know Christ. Try as they might, claw as they might, they will not have freedom from the death and darkness that awaits them. There's no out at this point, and so I call you to respond to Christ. I do so in love. I do so with truth today. Would you seize the opportunity before all hope is gone? All right, thirdly, let's spend a few minutes talking about the spiritual effects of this place. Number three there, capital C, spiritual torment. So it's a place of physical torment, number two, mental. Thirdly, it is a place of spiritual torment. Um, If you were to ask me what most scares you, what has most scared you or sobered you, even as you've studied for today, it is not the physical part, it's not the mental part, it's the spiritual part. I think that is going to be the the most intense aspect of this place and this experience for those outside of Christ. The unsaved will be in spiritual agony because they're separated from the God who made them forever and ever. We all know, don't we, there's a spiritual vacuum inside of us, right? A a God-sized hole that only God can fill. You remember how you just, I don't know, for those who are saved in the room who know Christ, do you remember just how you couldn't find satisfaction? You just couldn't fill yourself. It just, nothing was good enough and nobody could make up the difference. And it was just something that then when you found Christ and God found you, it just, it filled you, right? From your fingertips to your toes to your forehead, you just, you felt this is who I am now. I've reached fully who I'm created to be. Imagine never finding that and knowing you're never going to find that. That hole, that gnawing, not just your, we joke about being hangry. You know, I'm so hungry, I'm angry. That I just, I have something I can never reach out and seize that will satisfy me. Knowing that is there uh, is what awaits these in this place. The greatest agony of hell will be God's absence. The greatest joy of heaven is not the streets of gold and the pearly gates. It's the presence of God. And heaven and hell are shaped by where God is and where we are in relation uh, to Him. All right, let me illustrate this quickly, the contrast. Go to 2 Thessalonians, would you, for just a moment? I think we have time to do this. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 1, and let's look at verse 8 and 9. So what I want to show you is what the Bible promises about the landing spot or the destination, if you will, the loss compared to that of the believer. And I hope that will move you to appreciate if you know Christ, and it would move you to opt for this end game, this promise of God for those who trust Christ. First Timothy chapter 1, I'm sorry, first, I'll get there, 2 Thessalonians, sorry, started with a T, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. In flaming fire, this is <laughs> describing the Lord Jesus coming back from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel. And that interesting that The gospel demands our obedience, not just our faith, but our obedience. It's a command that all men should uh, repent and be saved. Obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 9, who shall punish with everlasting destruction. Notice this next phrase, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's the destination of those who reject Christ. Now, the opposite side of the coin, go to Revelation 21 and look, if you will, at verse number 3. So there's the, what we lose if we don't receive Christ, and then there's what we gain if we do. Revelation 21, and we'll talk more about all of this chapter in a few weeks as we study on heaven, but look, if you will, just at verse 3. 
And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God shall be with them and be their God. Don't you love how John, just on this break, just keeps saying it from a little different angle? Just, I'm with you, and I'm with you, and I'm with you. That is only for those who know Christ as Savior. And so this place of hell is a place of separation from uh, God and from His presence, and only when we receive Christ can we enter into that same presence. Really, hell, in one sense, to be blunt with you today, is just the absence of God. And some of you in this room, you're living that out right now, maybe, and I love you enough, this church loves you enough to invite you into His presence. Hell is not just some place somewhere sometime in the future, it's also being lived out in some sense right now. If you don't know Christ, you are separated from God because of your sin. God came after you, and God longs today to have a relationship with you. Would you end the spiritual torment now while you have time to receive Jesus as your Savior? All right, and then lastly, number four, let's spend a few minutes talking about the fact this torment is just. So it is, number one, physical, it is mental, it is spiritual, and lastly, it is just torment. Not as in it's only, but as in it is righteous. It is in no way improper of our God to send an unrepentant sinner to this place. And I mentioned it at the beginning with the universalism. Have you ever heard this? How can a loving God send people to hell? That is the question of the ages. That's the question that often we hear. And may I say, how God can send people to hell is He can do so justly. He has every right to do so. And so let's talk for just a minute about that, this idea of this torment being just. Throughout history, God's punishment has always been parallel to the crime. Outside of His grace, God has never overjudged. He's never underjudged. He's always done what's right, not just in Himself, but in His response to our failings. And may I say today, if hell seems more terrible than the sin that we see in our world, it's because we underestimate God's justice, His holiness, and His own view of sin. It's not on Him. It's not that He has a problem. It's that we view things through a distorted lens. Um, One of the other questions that often comes up as it relates to hell is, are there levels to it? Are there different levels of punishment and intensities of, of the consequences? And I believe clearly in Scripture, the Bible teaches that there are. Um, We'll talk about the judgment uh, seat of Christ for the believer, the great white throne judgment. But why is God so thorough in the great white throne judgment? He is manifesting that he is meeting out his judgment with precision. It's not, you guys are all rebels, and he just, he's very careful. He's very thorough. He keeps record, and he can easily demonstrate that this place, if we would share in it, is a place of justice. And so these specific degrees, what determines the degree of punishment that the unbeliever experiences here? It would be in accordance with the measure of sin in one's life. The Hitlers, the the Stalins, and sometimes those that we would maybe not lump in with them that have violated God's law in such a proficient manner. It would also be uh, in proportion to the extent of our sinful influence on others, how we've impacted others in their lives, abusing or mistreating or misguiding others. That would have a role in uh, this uh, judgment as well. And then I think most importantly, It would be in proportion to the amount of gospel light that we've rejected. And can I just lovingly tell you today, here in the United States of America, especially in Wayne County, Ohio, we are inundated with it. It's it's everywhere. Yesterday we went hiking with the men, and a guy handed me a gospel track that had clearly the presentation of the gospel, didn't it, Danny? 
It was, I mean, I'm just walking through the woods and there's someone there giving me the gospel. We all will answer for that. It's everywhere. And so our judgment will be in proportion to that. And so we must steward well uh, the gospel. We must be faithful to admonish others uh, to do the same. And so these different levels, we clearly will study as we study about the great white throne judgment, uh, will be meted out. So hell is not a place to party with our friends. It's a terrible place. It's a horrific place that God never intended to send us. Would you allow him to free you? Would you allow him, the God that some say, how can he be loving and send people to hell? This is a God who doesn't send us to hell. Our sins do. And he put the cross between us. We've got to climb over it. We've got to run around it to go to this place. That's how much God loves us. Would you respond to that call today as God works in your heart? All right, let's end today with one verse. Would you go to Revelation 20, just back a verse or two, and notice verse 14. I love this verse. Revelation 20 and verse 14. And before we look at that, I just wanted to show you this picture. Somebody sent this to me the other day. It's a sobering picture. Some of you probably saw it online. But the title of the picture is Church is Not Enough. And I have to tell you, my greatest fear as a pastor, you who have joined, we have some folks joining our church today, they hear me say it every time in our meeting, my prayer is there will never be someone who is a member of North Life Baptist Church or even attend here who thinks they're going to heaven because they attend here or they're a member here and they wake up in hell. That's my greatest, to be honest with you, that's my greatest fear. That's my greatest concern as, as a pastor, as a fellow believer. But this, this summary, as you look at that picture, the author said this, you can have been born in a church, have served in the church, have been baptized in the church. You could have been married in the church, sang in the church, preached in the church, that convicted me, died in the church, even been veiled or buried in the church and still end up in hell because you were only in the church and not in Christ. And my question to you today is, are you in Christ? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone? That's the only way out of this place, is to be in Christ. It's not this church, and it's not who thinks what of you. It has to be God. All right, look here in Revelation 20, and verse 14, as we finish. And let's end here with a, a word of encouragement as it relates to this horrific and yet glorious revelation from God. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. There's the physical and spiritual components of every unbeliever. Notice this, this is the second death. Now, I just want to take for a minute this question and we'll finish. Can we view this through a redemptive lens? Can we view this in a way that sees God as actually using this terrible doctrine, this horrific place that we briefly studied today is there a redemptive purpose in it? And here's the thought. When God, in verse 14 that we just read, sends death into the lake of fire, listen to me, the lights go out on everything that's evil. It's over. Don't we want that day someday? So don't lay at the feet of our God. Don't chafe under the doctrine today. Revel in it. If you need to receive Christ as Savior, do so. But if you know Christ as Savior Day, glory in the fact there's a moment coming where God ends all of it. The lights go out on evil. The lights go out on anyone who willfully rejects our Lord and Savior, and we move forward with all that God has planned. Here's the thought. Jonathan Edwards said this, the one who preached the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of Angry God. He said this in another writing of his, this world, listen to these words, I love this, this world is all the heaven that unbelievers shall ever enjoy. 
And it is also all the hell that a true Christian is ever to endure. Isn't that awesome? May we rejoice in what God has done for us even in our study today. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word today.